The reading this morning is from Luke 19, verses 11 to 28. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everybody who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Good morning, everyone. Um, I must admit I like the setting. I like the tables. Um, I hope you enjoy the chairs, um, but I'm watching you, so if you fall asleep, I know why. Uh, I won't take the blame. Um, All right, well, as we get to the word this morning, let's open in prayer as as we think about this passage this morning. Let's close our eyes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for what you show us through your word. But ultimately, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who as we read your word, we learn more about and grow in our understanding. And hopefully we grow in our love for you more and more. And that we see your grace and your love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at this text, that you will speak to us through your word, that we may see your son, Jesus Christ, uh, and know that he is the true king. So Lord, we pray that you, you open our ears, open our hearts, and open our minds to everything that you want to share with us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Well, we are in Luke 19, verse 11 to 28. Uh, 
If you noticed, uh, I've put in verse 28 just to give you some understanding of what's happening here. Uh, verse 28 is, seems to be the next section, but it's actually important that we just notice that this is the end of a section in actual fact. So verse 28 says, And when he said these things, uh, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So this comes to the final part of um, this mission that Jesus had uh, just before he goes back up uh, before he goes into Jerusalem and so from there the story focus and things changes slightly uh, because now he is preparing to die on the cross and be raised again but we are still in this section and the last while we've been focusing on uh, a lot about entering the kingdom uh, on salvation in the kingdom so if you see there, I've just put some verses that we touched on over the last couple of weeks while we were in Luke. Uh, Luke 18, verse 16, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, when he's talking about the little children. Uh, verse 24, he says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Uh, verse 18, uh, chapter 18, 29 to 30, uh, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much. And then Luke 19, verse 10, which was last week, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so we are looking at this idea of this kingdom that God is talking about and who can enter it. Uh, so this week, the focus is um, who may be welcomed into the kingdom. Uh, that sounds very similar to what Ludwig had last week. Um, but there is a slight shift in focus here, um, but it's still this reiteration uh, that Jesus is making, talking about the kingdom, talking about those who can come in uh, and what that looks like. So before we get to the passage, maybe you guys have heard that uh, quote that I put there, don't work hard, work smart. Uh, I don't know if anybody has told you that at some point in life. I know I've been told that, don't work hard, work smart. Um, Especially, I think, in business. I feel like I read a book once uh, of some guy that was just trying to build people up within the workplace. And the whole idea was not to work hard, but to work smart. Uh, so utilizing your time, working efficiently, but uh, doing it so that you're not exhausting yourself in the process, but doing an effective job. Uh, and hopefully I'll change that and change your minds on that ver that quote by the end of this morning, that it's a little bit more than just don't work hard, uh, work smart, that there's something better that we can hold on to as Christians. Um, so let's look at this passage and uh, let's see what's, what's happening here. Uh, in, this, in this verse, uh, um, in chapter eight, uh, 19, sorry, I made the mistake there. It's chapter 19, verse 11. It starts uh, with this verse where he says that, where the passage tells us that the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. This is important for us uh, to understand what is about to be said. So keep that in mind as we read and learn about this parable, that the whole parable is based around this issue, that people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. It wasn't something that was a slow process. There was an expectation. There was a hope that it would happen immediately. And so Jesus saying this and teaching this parable is preparing people not to expect the kingdom to come at once, 
but in fact something else, something more important. So let's take a look at this parable. We have read it, but let's see a few of the the characters. Uh, The people that are in these stories are significant to us because they help us understand what Jesus is saying. Um, So as we begin, we see there in verse 12, it says, He said, Therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So just to begin, uh, we hear about this nobleman, this king, or this person that is wanting to claim this land. And first of all, we, make the, we, we look at this and we see clearly as we work through this passage that this is talking about Jesus. And I, I don't want to jump ahead, but this is evident as we work through the passage of the language that is used uh, first of all the little things that we can see when it's when it says that he he went into a far country so it's a distant land to receive himself a kingdom and then return so we knowing what jesus did he left heaven came to earth came here to claim a kingdom and to return now we know that jesus story is slightly different Um, as he comes into this world, his crowning moment is not nearly what this seems to be in this story. But yet Jesus is the one that actually truly fulfills this form of parable. It carries on the the parable. Uh, And it says, "Calling, uh, Calling his servants, he gave them ten minutes and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So there is a clear significance in that, that here's this king, he's come into this land, he's called his servants to come and do his work, and he's going to go off, but he is going to return. There's going to be a moment where this king will return to see what is happening in his kingdom and with his minnows. So I hope you can see there's these aspects that come across that's very similar to that of Jesus and what Jesus actually came to do when you look at the whole story about Jesus and his life. As we move on, the other character that's already been mentioned now is the servants. Uh, Servants or slaves, however you want to translate it, depending on your version. But these are the servants that he calls. Um, And these people are significant as the people that do serve him, that love this king, that will do what he asks them to do. So these servants are those who serve Christ. And as this parable unfolds and as we've read, you see he gives them these minas. They go out and they are to serve him through making something with what he has given them. So I won't read that whole section again. But as the story progresses, Jesus, the king returns and he calls the servants and he asks them what have they done with his minas. Uh, we see three cases of servants. Uh, the first that has made profit of ten extra minas. Uh, there's the other one that's turned the one into five minas. And then there's the last one who wraps it up in a cloth and has done nothing with it. And so you see this level of fruitfulness that has taken place. But the contrast with the one that hasn't produced anything. And yet, these are the servants that we are told about in this story. There is one other character or one other group of people in this parable that's important. And that is the subjects. If Depending on what version you have, 
Uh, a better word that I would go for is citizens. Uh, these are the people of the land, the, the normal average folk. Where this king has come in, they are the citizens of this land. And so what happens is there is this uproar about this king that's coming in and wanting to claim the land. The reason why they are in uproar is not clearly and explicitly indicated other than that they hate him. They hate this king. They don't want him. Uh, and so there's this rejection. And uh, it's interesting because the citizens then of this land in very much the same way fulfill that role that the people did when Jesus was crucified, that they rejected him, they despised him. Uh, they actually wanted to push him out. So I hope you can see these images coming through. Helpful images to recognize. But the big question is, what is this parable then all about? What is Jesus trying to teach through this parable? You have the nobleman, the king, which is symbolic and, and imaging Christ. Then you have the servants, those that are serving Christ, serving the king, and the citizens that are rejecting or despising the king. Is it simply that? Is that all he's saying? Well, let's try and understand it a little bit further. It's interesting as we think about this, this passage that our focus tends to want to go to that last character, the last servant, uh, the one who fails to produce any minnows, uh, who covers it up and is fearful of the king. But I think we mustn't overlook the main character in this parable. The servants are there to serve, uh, but the main character is the king running throughout this parable. It is about the king and what is the king is going to do. And as I put that verse in the, in the top there, to keep us, keep reminding us, Jesus is addressing the question about the people's thought that the kingdom was going to come at once. So, what he is doing then through this parable is he is showing them not so much the kingdom, but actually the king of the kingdom. The main character of the parable is the one that our attention needs to be drawn to. The main character of the parable is the one that helps us understand what Jesus is trying to teach us. That it's not about how quickly this kingdom will appear, but in fact the king that is among them. Here's Jesus who is in the world and people are failing to see him. And they are more concerned about a kingdom. Jesus is telling this parable for the very reason that people are waiting for a kingdom and failing to see the very king that's in their midst. And so we can't overlook this main character. The king is here to demonstrate something for us, to show us. The king is here to show us something bizarre. Something peculiar, because if you notice, there's something bizarre about this king. He's a king that doesn't make sense. Did anybody pick that up when we read this passage? This king doesn't seem to make sense. And it stumped me. It stumped me as I was reading this. But think through it for a moment. 
Here are the slaves, these servants of the king, and he gives them minas. They ten servants, ten minas. Each one gets a mina. A mina for you, just to help you understand, is something to, to the extent of about three months' wages. It's what a mina is, essentially. Somewhere around there. Three months' wages. Here, this king gives each one the value of three months' wages. And he says, go off and do business. Trade. Do what you can with that. See what, what you can do. The bizarre part of it is that the first servant that the king comes to see has made ten minas. Now, if you do the math, you can work out how much wage that would be. But what's more significant is if you look into, and I, I did a bit of scratching because I was really curious on this, but the value of ten minas is actually half the value of a slave at that time. Around that time, ten minas would get you half of a slave. Okay? So here's the bizarre thing. This slave, this first servant, has actually got half of his worth back. The second one, a little bit less. And the third one doesn't even bother. He's too afraid of the king. But what is the king's response to this? And the reason why I'm telling you about the minas and the, the, the value in relation to the servants themselves is Jesus' reward. Because his reward doesn't match. It would make sense if you come back with ten minas and you get ten more. Or if you come with five and you get a bonus of five. But this king is extravagant. This king is upside down. This king is peculiar. Because instead of doubling that servant's wealth or what he has earned for the king, he instead does something further. He says, I will give you ten cities. I mean, if you can do the math, that doesn't make sense. I mean, if you've earned a month's wages, three months' wages, and you triple that, and you go to your boss, and they say, oh, great, I will give you a city now for every month's salary. It doesn't make sense. The next one gets five cities. I mean, this is bizarre. I, I don't know who taught this king maths, but it's amazing. Look at his generosity, his his willingness to extend such grace. And, I mean, doesn't make sense. And this is why I think the focus is on the king. Because the last servant actually helps us draw our attention once again to the king. Not so much to what the servant has done wrong, but to the king. Because this last servant... In great protest, listen to his words. He says, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is my mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you, with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping 
what I did not sow. But the peculiar thing is this goes against what we just saw and what the king just demonstrated to the other two servants. Because as severe as he can be, he can also be incredibly gracious, incredibly generous. In fact, incredibly generous is not a good enough explanation or expression for what he is. He is illogical in his generosity. That's how generous he is. He gives so much more. Now you tell me, is that a severe king? Well, perhaps he is severe in his seriousness to do what he believes to be right to those that serve him and those that don't. So this stumped me. I mean, hopefully it's sinking into you as well, that this story almost doesn't make sense. Who would do what this king has done? It seems that the only thing that is equal and right is what he gives to the last servant. The last servant points out that he's severe and he was afraid and he hid, everything, he hid the minna away. And so he gets the punishment that he deserves. He gets a punishment that fits the crime. But for the others, it doesn't match up. It doesn't line up. He gives far over and above what he ought to. Because this is the king that we serve. This is the one that we are waiting for, for his return. You see, when we live in a life of sin and brokenness, the punishment that fits the crime is death. Nothing more. Nothing less. Death. The end. But this is how Jesus works. Because a sinner that comes in repentance, seeking salvation, and living a life for Jesus, he offers something far above what we originally deserved. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful isn't that good news that what we once deserved he doesn't just get rid of he doesn't just wipe it off the record but he actually gives you so much more in abundance and so this is why i say this passage is not about this kingdom as a place but it is about the king and the way he Rules and the way he is going to reign. He's going to be just, but it's not going to feel like that if you're on the wrong side. Because I can tell you now look at that trickle of words that followed when Jesus says, See there, because when he takes that minnow away. He says in verse 24, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Unfortunately, if you're on the wrong side, and if your heart is on the wrong side, it's not going to look fair. And unfortunately, there's a question there in the hearts of those people. They're getting concerned about one minna that gets moved to the other guy. 
But the reality is that they've already got 10, that guy's already got 10 cities. If you're on the wrong side of who God is, it becomes frightening. But more so, how does this impact us? How does this affect us? The question that we need to ask ourselves is where do we fit into this story? Are we the servants? Are we the citizens? Citizens we hear outright hate the king. Okay? Are you the servants or are you the citizens? If you are a servant, what kind of servant are you to the Lord? Are you a servant that is driven to, to serve him, to love him, to honor him? Or are you one that is fearful of him and cover up what he has given you? waiting for his return, thinking that that cuts it, that that's enough. Because unfortunately, it's ambiguous, the ending of this, this parable. The minna is taken away and given to the, tens, uh, the, to the one with the ten. And then verse 26, it says, And I tell you that to everyone who, who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's frightening. It's frightening because we need to weigh up in our heart which camp are we falling in. Are we going to fall in the camp of the servant that actually maybe down in his heart doesn't really know the king properly and he could fall into the wrong camp as well that he himself could actually be counted among the citizens who hate the king or are we among those that take what he has given us and we share it we grow it we produce fruit with it see Jesus when he returns, there's going to be two sides, two things that we need to wrestle with for ourselves. And as we wait for his return, we need to know whether we are on the right side or the wrong side. What's happening in your heart? What's happening in your heart and your mind regarding who this king is? Are you despising him? Are you wasting what he has given you? Or are you faithfully living toward the king? Are you faithfully acting in everything that you do in response to the king and his return? Because the reality is there's consequences for our actions. And the amazing part of that is if you're on the right side, the consequences are fantastic. But unfortunately, if you're on the wrong side, the consequences are devastating. But Christ is inviting. And so the one thing that I have put there, and I want us to just think through, is in the time of waiting for this king's return, there was a freedom. In the parable, we can see it, and there's a freedom for us to choose what we want to do. This is the bizarre thing of how Jesus works. He gives us the option. He says, you decide. You live for me. 
you don't live for me. You despise me or you love me. You do things for me or you don't do things for me. So there is a thin line. We need to be certain of where we stand with that. Because the king is a generous king. He's a loving king. He's a just king. And that's wonderful news if we're on his side. And just a reminder of what it says in Matthew 7 verse 21. And this is just a... It's just something to instill this thought that that we need to wrestle with this where he actually says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we are called as his servants. If we're sitting here this morning and I ask you, are you his servant? And my follow-up question is, are you producing fruits? Grow those fruits for Him. May you build a profit in the work that you do for Him. Your work isn't based on you trying to get into heaven. That's not it. Your work is based on the King that you serve. It's not about how hard you try to be a good Christian. It's not about how well you excel in your circumstances in life. It's not about you. But it's about the way you are living for Jesus. Are you living out your life for Him? Are you recognizing that He is the true King? And that in Him there is reward. Or are you just waiting around, hoping that you've done what you need to do and that you're okay because you said Jesus and you believe in him to some degree? Or are you living out for him? Is your life reflecting him? Are your words reflecting him? You see, these servants, the three servants, the first two, they accepted who the king was. They knew the king. And they did what they needed to do. The other one said he knew the king. But clearly he didn't know him as well as he thought he did. Because had he known who the king was, he would have realized that there would be a reward. And our reward today, it's a bizarre thing because he has this parable, first of all. But it helps us to understand that there is a reward. It seems that these people, they had to wait for, Christ, for the king's return to see that there was a reward. But we are sitting on a different plane, on a different side of things, knowing that there will be something that will come. And that is that when Christ returns, our reward far exceeds what we originally deserved. And that is life. Life in abundance. And we become citizens of his kingdom. We become part of his family. So my closing thought there, and this is going back to don't work hard, work smart. I want to change it. Maybe there is working smart is 
knowing who your master is. But don't work hard. Work by faith in the grace that Jesus Christ has shown you. That's something that we as Christians will do differently. It's not about working harder in our faith to get a better reward. It's not about trying to be as smart as you can so you can do as little as you can. But it's about working not hard out of a religious requirement, but out of a response to a generous king. An awesome, wonderful, generous king who is extending to you life, grace, a hope. He is extending himself to you. And all we need to do is acknowledge that. Acknowledge that we don't deserve any better than what we are and what we have done. But that in Christ, he sets us free. In Christ, he redeems us. In Christ, he removes us out of our brokenness, out of our sinfulness. And that's the beauty of this parable. That here are slaves, servants, but he gives them cities. What a generous king. We may be nothing in light of our sin, but we are heirs in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are the true King. We thank you that despite our brokenness, despite our sin, and despite what we truly deserve, we can come to you and know that you are a generous king. A generous king that gives far, far above what we truly deserve. And as we serve and work and faithfully pursue you, that your reward is life. Lord, all our actions, all our deeds, may the religion in our actions and our service to you be f- fade away. That may our works and our deeds and our things that we do for you be grounded in the love that we have for you as the king of all kings. Lord, because we know that religion is not going to get us into heaven. Only your son, Jesus Christ, can. And Lord, you will redeem us only through him. And Lord, maybe we're struggling with this. Maybe this is something that we can't wrap our heads around. Maybe we don't understand fully the grace that you have shown, for, shown us. But continue to have mercy on us as we wrestle through these things, as we learn to understand them, as we grow in our love for you. And Lord, forgive us where we are fickle creatures. 
where we are swayed from one thing to another thing and how quickly we forget what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. May we never forget. And Lord, when we do, may we be reminded in every aspect, in every moment, in every area of life, despite what is happening around us, the reality of the grace that you have shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. That nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from your love once we are grounded and established in your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, may all our actions, may all that we do be a response to the greatest most wonderful, generous King that there is who has given us life and life in abundance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.